family. This is a fun thing. This is like totally nerve wracking. I can't look out at my, my family in person. I got to look at this little thing. But we love you guys. Yes. Uh, look forward to a little time here today. Hopefully, all of you stayed accident free, stayed warm, and you shoveled your driveways. Is that what happened for all you guys? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, um, we're going to be in Genesis 2. And, okay. Uh, See you guys later. You will. Okay, and I am, uh, I love the word, so I'm looking forward to bringing that to you this morning. We're in Genesis 2, I'm titling it the Lord God, because when you get to chapter 2 and verse 4, from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through 2, 3, as we talked about last week, you have God, 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 35 times, and that's the word Elohim, which speaks of the Trinity. When we get to chapter 2 and verse 4, it switches, and so in chapters 2 and 3, what we, what we read continuously is the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, God. And that Lord is, is a transliteration of the name either Yahweh or Jehovah that is God's personal name, and it's his name used in relationship with man. So that's just a little beginning there for you. So it's God in relationship to man that we're going to look at now, beginning in verse 4. But let's take it back. Let me read chapter 2, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 4. I'll pray and we'll ask the Holy Spirit to bless our time in his word. Let's pray. So Lord, thank you for your word and we thank you, Lord, for the fact that you are a personal, loving, all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere present God. That Lord, you do not despise the brokenhearted. That Lord, you're with us to walk with us and help us and strengthen us. And right from the beginning, in Genesis chapter 2, we find this amazing Lord God who, Lord, you are wanting us to know you. And so I pray your blessing over the word today. And if anyone is watching that doesn't know you personally, then, Lord, our prayer is that you would draw them to yourself through the word today and you bless them in drawing them to that place of repentance and faith in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so verse uh, 1. Thus the heavens and earth and all the hosts of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day. We looked at this last week and sanctified it because in it, he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. Now, verse two or four. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day. Here it is. The Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So I, you know, it's interesting when you go to the New Testament, you find that the, the Genesis is quoted 120 times. And in Genesis itself, 42 times in Genesis, the first three chapters. And so even Jesus quoted it often. And it, it just points to the fact that the origins of our faith, the origins of the things that were given in the word are understood as being very, very important to Jesus himself and throughout the whole New Testament. So again, the Lord God is in his personal name, Yahweh, Yahweh Elohim, four letters, Y-H-W-H or G-J-H-V-H, uh, and where, where the Jews revered God's name so highly they wouldn't even speak it, and when they wrote it, they wouldn't put in the consonants, or the vowels rather. So that's where you got this tetragrammaton, this uh, four-letter transliteration of God's name. So it literally means the becoming one. 
That's what God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. It means he who is or he who brings being into being. He's the I am that I am, which really means that God, in personal relationship with man, wants to become all that we need for us in our lives. And he knows those needs. He wants that personal relationship. But here's something that's even more profound. The Lord God is God in covenant relationship with man. So you have Noah, you have Abraham, you have Moses and David that God made covenants with. He swore to them. And then the new covenant that Jesus instituted when he came. And we read in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 13 this. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he, God, swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply you. So the writer of Hebrews chapter 6 goes on in verse 17 to say, Thus God, listen to this, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel. That means the unchanging plans that God has his counsel, the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge, lay hold of the hope set before us. So here's the Lord God, creator of all things. He not only promised, but then he swore it. So by two immutable things, which is impossible for God to lie, we have this hope in Christ. So I said, this hope we have, this is again, Hebrews 6 and verse 19. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, our souls anchored, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunners entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of my God. I mean, just right off the bat, you have the Lord, L-O-R-D, capital, the covenant God, Yahweh, Elohim, who enters into these covenant relationships where he promises things and he swears he will do them. So here's the promise. You and I were made by the Lord God to know him, and he makes possible that happening. So Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, and you have sent. When David was on his last days and he's talking to his son Solomon, he says this in 1 Chronicles 28, verse 9. As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your fathers and serve him with a loyal heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands all the intents of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will be found by you. God is faithful. He's promised. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. Now, the psalmist follows up on that in Psalm 910, where he says, And those who know your name will put their trust in you, for you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. And then Jeremiah said it like this. He said, Thus says the Lord, again, the covenant Yahweh, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his strength, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, Jeremiah 9.23, now verse 24. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord, L-O-R-D, exercising, listen, loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth, for in these I delight, says Lord loving kindness and righteousness in the earth. And so in 2 Corinthians, Paul wrote this, for it is, the, it is the God 
who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And John the Apostle wrote this in 1 John chapter 5. This is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life, but he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. He said, these things I have written to you that you may believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. And we know, he goes on to say, the Son of God has come and given us an understanding that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. My friends, my brothers and sisters, God has made possible a deep, intimate relationship with him through Jesus Christ. He promised it. He swore to it. He sent Christ, and we now can know God. But right from the beginning, the Lord God created everything with you and I in mind. It's amazing. Look at verse 4. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Before any plant of the field was in the earth, before any herb of the field had grown, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and notice there was no man to till the ground. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. The Lord God created everything with you and me, with man in mind. And so the earth was like a big greenhouse, but man was the crowning pinnacle, the grand finale of all the Lord God had created. The Lord God created everything to then create man. Male and female, he created in his image, he created them. Now, it's interesting to me, as we looked at last week, that 10 times we find this little phrase, according to its kind. And, and God says that about the plants, plant life and seed life, about the bird life and animal life, all in Genesis 1. But there's a big difference when he talks about man. He said here, when speaking of man, according to our likeness. You see, all that God created in man we are uniquely the pinnacle and grand finale of the whole thing. So he created man in his own image, verse 27 of chapter 1. In the image of God, he created male and female, he created them. And notice he said to have dominion over the fish. So the Lord God, he created all these things as a gift to man to enjoy and to keep. And so I think of what Job said. What is man that you should exalt him, that you should set your heart on him? God has given us a place in his creation, in his kingdom, that is far and above all other things. And all these other things he gave to us as a gift that we might know him. And so the psalmist, as we looked at last week, when I consider that your heavens, the work of your hands, the work of your fingers, Psalm 8, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man? Who am I that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you should visit him? You see, the Lord God, he created everything with you and me in mind. And then the Lord God created you to know him personally. He created it in his image to have this relationship with him that's different than all other things that he created. And so in chapter 2, verse 7, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being, unlike the animals, formed and breathed life into us by God himself. And we are alive only because God breathed his life into us. 
So Psalm 139, many of you know it very well, one of my favorite psalms. For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from me when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in lower parts of the earth. You numbered my days. You knew them before they were even. He says, God formed us, created us, breathed life into us after according to his image according to his likeness that we might know him we are individual living beings unique one of a kind of the billions and billions of human beings god has formed in the womb there is not one not one that's the same you are unique loved by god to know him and walk with him we are living as we looked at last week living spiritual sacred and self-determinant beings because we are created in the image of God, male and female, to know him. We are, we are moral and creative and relational beings because we are created in God's image to know him and to walk with him. We are living souls destined for an eternal habitation. It's either life or death. It's either in heaven or in hell because it says there, dust you are and to dust you shall return in Genesis 3.19. You see, one day this body, this earthly tent, this vessel of clay, as we looked at last week also, will give out, and when it does, we will move out. <laughs> God has a building of God, not made of the eternal, for the believer. And so Hebrews tells us, it is appointed for men to die once. After this judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. Now listen, Hebrews 9, 27, to those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. The Lord God created you to know you, him personally, to save you from sin and death through his son, Jesus Christ, our great high priest. Now, God created everything with you and me in mind. He created you to know him personally, but secondly, he put you and me right where you are on purpose. That's what he did. God put you right where you are on purpose. Notice, it says verse eight. The Lord God, this is verses eight through 15. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so when God was done, he said, you saw all these things were very good. Psalmist says, oh, taste and see, the Lord is good. He put man in the garden and made every tree that's pleasant to the sight and good for food. You see, to see his beauty and goodness right where he put you. In all of his creation, he put you there that you might see his beauty and taste of his goodness right where he put you. I think of when God, when God spoke to Job that we studied a little while ago. As God revealed himself to Job in chapter 38, in verse 4, he said, Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundation of the earth? And of course, he wasn't there. And God said, When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. You see, in the creation, we read of this loud, joyous chorus of heavenly proportion. There is just this tremendous joy and tremendous expression as this, this, these, these hosts of heaven 
are singing for joy. And then when all things are wrapped up at the end of the age, we read of this heavenly scene in Revelation 4, 9. It says, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And listen, they cast their crowns before the throne saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Now notice, for you created all things and for your, by your will, they exist and were created. All of these things are good. All of these things God is going to wrap up in his plan. And he wants us to, where we are right now, right where he put us, be able to see his beauty and see his goodness and see his power in creation itself. Not only that, look at verses 10 through 14. A river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four riverheads. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah. Notice where there is gold, so we want to know where Havilah is. And the gold of that land is good. Bedlam and the onyx stone are there also, precious things. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third is Hittikel, which really, which is also the Tigris River. It is the one which goes toward the east of Assyria. The fourth river is Euphrates. So we don't know exactly where the Garden of Eden was located. There's ideas and a pretty good general idea. Um, there are two rivers mentioned here that we know of today, two that we don't. So whatever happened to them, some have suggested they came underground rivers. But whatever is happening there, you have gold, you have precious stones, you have these rivers that's be, that are being described to us. And it's always fun to try and discover and search out these kinds of things. I looked at a bunch of maps. Where's the Garden of Eden? All those kinds of things. And so the second thing, as God has put you right where you are, he put you there on purpose, first of all, to see his beauty and goodness and all of what he's done and who he is. Secondly, is to discover the riches and mysteries that he's put there for us to discover right where he put us. So again, we don't know exactly where some of these things are. Uh, if we knew where Havilah was, we'd go there and start doing our little gold hunting right now. But here, here's what I wrote here. The reality is that science is just discovering what God already knew. Isn't that fantastic? God's given to us his creation. It's so intricate and so complex. But he's also giving us in his image this ability to discover, this ability to research, this ability to gain knowledge and understand things. And so science is simply God letting man in on all of his mysteries. And what an enjoyable approach that is. And what a, what a frustrating, I think, it would be an, an emptiness there is to discover things and never discovering God. You see, God put you right where you are to discover him to learn about him, to discover these things. Psalm 111, 2 says this, the works of the Lord are great, studied by all who have pleasure in them or sought after by all who have pleasure in them. We see the creation, it cries out creator. We see design, it cries out designer. And we begin to look into these things and it just rises in our hearts, this understanding that the Lord God created us to know him. And he gave us everything to research and know and gain more and more of an understanding that it's so vast and so absolutely out of this world, literally, that we can never plumb the depths of all the things that God has in store for us. Galileo said, I do not feel obliged to believe that the same God who has endowed us with senses, reason, and intellect 
has intended us to forego their use. Albert Einstein said the most beautiful thing we can experience is the mysterious, capital M. The most beautiful thing we can experience is the mysterious. Francis Collins, who is the director of the National Institute of Health, he converted from atheism to Christianity when faced with the incompatibility of a Christian God and the theory of evolution. He wrote this, quote, the God of the Bible is also the God of the genome. God can be found in the cathedral or in the laboratory. By investigating God's majestic and awesome creation, science can actually be a means of worship. Uh, just recently, last week, there was this uh, post on Facebook that, that my wife read. The title was, Researchers Discover a Pattern to the Seemingly Random Distribution of Prime Numbers. And I read it, and I don't get it, but Charlotte posted this on Facebook. She said, this is actually really cool. Even though I am not smart enough to completely understand it, for me, this discovery just confirms to me what an amazing creator God we have of our earth and universe. They have discovered order in what was previously perceived as chaos. Fantastic. You know, the pagans used to say the earth was supported by a giant man called Atlas, while the Greeks had horses, elephants, and snakes supporting the planet. And this knowledge was well known and trusted at the time the Bible was being written when the Bible declared, Isaiah 40, 22, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. At the same time, there was a time when it was believed on the earth that, that the earth sat on a large animal or a giant. That was about 1500 BC. And the Bible spoke of the earth's free float in space where Job wrote, he hangs the earth on nothing. He stretches out the north over empty space. You see, science didn't, didn't discover these things until 1650, but God knew them all along. And so that's the beauty here. God has placed us, he put us where he put us, that we might discover his riches and the mysteries of his creation built in to direct us toward himself, who is so mysteriously awesome in many ways. So, um, it, only in recent years has science discovered that everything we see is composed of things that we cannot see, invisible atoms. And so 2,000 years ago, by faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are, which are visible. One more, if you don't mind. The Bible and the science of oceanography. Matthew Morey in the 1800s is considered the father of oceanography. He noted the expression, paths of the sea in Psalm 8.8. Now this was written 28 years before him and said, if God said there are paths in the sea, I'm going to find them. So Maury then took God at his word, went looking for these paths, and we are indebted to his discovery of the warm and cold continental currents. And his book on oceanography remains a basic text and it's still used in many universities. You see, science is only God letting us in on what he already knows, and it's absolutely amazing. So the Lord God put you right where he put you on purpose, to serve him with meaning and purpose, right where he put you. Notice verse 15, the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. You see, God put you where you are, and he put me where I am on purpose. And sometimes you wonder, well, you know, why was I born in the United States? Or we, or we think, well, I'm glad I wasn't born there. Well, let me read you something from the book of Acts that is so profound and yet worth our great thinking. 
he said to, the, to these philosophers on Mars Hill in Athens, he said, I was considering the objects of your worship. This is Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 22. He said, I was considering the objects of your worship. Now, Paul's a believer. He's walking around looking at all these idols there. He says, I, I was considering the objects of your worship. I found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Now, Paul fantastically takes this, this idolatrous city. He picks out this one thing. He says, to the unknown God. He says, therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. God, this is Acts chapter 17, verse 24. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of man, of men, to dwell on all the face of the earth, Adam and Eve, the original, and has determined, notice, has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwelling so that they should seek the Lord in hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him, he's quoting a poet, in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own prophets have said, for we are also his offspring. Because we all are cre created by God to know him. We're all created by God, and he's put us where he's put us on purpose. And that purpose ultimately as that we might know him that we might experience in our lives that relationship with god that we so desperately need created to understand and experience and so paul said therefore since we're the offspring of god we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone something shaped by by art and man's device so he's pointing to all these idols Truly, he said, these times of ignorance, God overlooked. God is so gracious and so long-suffering, so compassionate. All the way through these thousands of years of men in his idolatrous relationships with everything that was dead and of no life. He said, God overlooked, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent. Because God has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. How? By the man, capital M, whom he has ordained. He has given us assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So Jesus came, we'll look at this in a moment. Jesus came that we might know God, that we might experience him right where he's put us, that we might see his goodness and see his glory and see his purposes and see the things put before us as a means of having this relationship with him. So in chapter uh, two, verse 16 now, and the Lord God commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So here's the other thing. The Lord God gave you, he gave me life so that we never have to die. When God created Adam and Eve, when he created Adam and then created Eve from his side, he created us to have life and to know him and walk with him in continuous fellowship unbroken but he said here the, the lord god commanded the man saying of every tree of the garden you may eat freely but of the tree of the knowledge of good and shelling for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die so here's what's so important to understand the lord god gave you life so that you never have to die but my friends it's a choice it's a choice what happened with adam and eve and we'll look at this next week in chapter three of the fall maybe two weeks away 
in the fall, what happened is that there was a separation, that the relationship was broken, but not, it was no longer what God intended it to be. You see, God gave you the capacity to choose. It's so powerful that we choose life or we choose death, and God offers them, offers life to us, to live or to die. Adam was in the ideal environment. He was, had ideal conditions. All was perfect. All was beautiful. A part of that goodness, a part of that beauty was this restriction, this limitation that God put in the garden there with that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So why would God put a tree like that in the garden? Here's why. Because God gave to you and me this capacity to choose, to determine for myself, for you to determine for yourself what you want and what you don't want, what you will do and what you won't do. It's a choice. So God created us in his image with this potential of a meaningful relationship that's one entered into by my own will, my own volition, my own choice. So I determine for myself what I, whether I want to have this relationship with God or I don't. And God in giving Adam and, Eve, and creating and putting him in the garden, putting that tree of those two trees there, gave Adam a choice. He said, if you want to choose the tree of life or you want to choose the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is up to you, but there they are. So God created Adam and Eve for a meaningful relationship with him and not only with him, with one another. And so therefore, it's a choice. It must be entered into willingly, not grudgingly, freely, not forcibly. So this capacity to choose necessitates these things. Number one, the choice must be real. In other words, I'm actually determining what I will to do. It's my choice. There must be something to choose. In other words, there must be another option or other options when I'm given this capacity to choose. Now, the other option, however, must be an attractive alternative. So if there's one thing you want this, you know, chocolate sundae, or this other one, you want this, uh, you know, cow pie, what do you want? What are you going to choose? It's no choice at all. So there has to be an attractive alternative, something that's pleasant, something that looks and, and it, it just has something about that that I'm, I'm ten, I, I want to experience. So with that, the other option, there must be an attractive alternative. But then finally, that choice that I make must be honored. In other words, in a meaningful relationship where someone is choosing, if they're choosing to do something contrary to what I want them to do, I can stop them from doing that. But that hasn't changed anything that's going on in their hearts. And God does not override my bad choices. I must pay the bill. God honors the choice I make because they are real, because there is a choice, because there are other attractive alternatives. So he said to them, you shall surely die, or literally dying, you shall surely die. Now, death is simply separation. In this case, you shall surely die. The relationship that Adam had with God would be separated, severed because of sin. It also brought into the world physical death, where the soul is, the soul is separated from the body. Sin set in motion decay and death. As through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned in Romans. Your sin is separated from God. So you have spiritual death and you have physical death. Physical death did not happen right there. When Eve sinned, being deceived, Timothy tells us, 
And Adam sinned not being deceived. Interesting. We're not going to get into that right now. But there was this choice that was made. And when that choice was made, Adam and Eve did not die physically. They died spiritually. So I like to look at it as Father, Son, Holy Spirit, spirit, soul, and body. When God created us, spirit, soul, and body, we were spiritual beings. And our spirit bore witness with his spirit that we are sons of God. And the spirit ruled over the soul and the body. So all my appetites were governed by this relationship that I have with God through his spirit and my spirit in fellowship. When Adam sinned, he died spiritually. And man flipped upside down now. And now it's body, soul. And so what happened in sin is there was this death of my relationship with God, this separation. And now my body appetites ruled my soul. What am I going to eat? What am I going to wear? What am, how am I going to please these appetites of my flesh, of my pride? And so sin then set in motion this death experience in relationship with God, this death physically. And it then began to, to destroy all the good things that God had made that were very good. So Jesus said, you must be born again. You must be born again to the spirit, spiritually alive, so that now through, through God's, through the gospel, we can have relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And we'll get more of that as we go into chapter three. And so let's go on to chapter two, verse 18. And the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. And remember that God named the heavens and God named other things. But here he brings all the animals to Adam to name them. And as he's doing that, and he's naming all the animals. And I, that sounds like a huge project in my mind. But as he's doing that, there's, it says Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, verse 20, there was not found a helper comparable. Someone of human flesh and blood, someone that would be comparable and a companion for him. The animals are not that, and we're not that, and never will be that. And so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Notice it's so beautiful. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and, the two, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked. This is so beautiful. The man and his wife and were not ashamed. You see, the Lord God gave you love so that you never have to be alone. That's what God's done down through history. The Lord God gave you love so that you never have to be alone. Now, this was greatly marred through the fall, but God, not man, created man, the man and the woman for this marriage relationship. God designed the marriage relationship for, for one, and I have to say this these days, genetic man, and for one genetic woman. God then instituted and sanctified marriage, the marriage relationship, according to his design. That's what God sanctifies and blesses. And God's design was without flaw then, 
and God's design is without flaw now. The problem has never been in God's design. Jesus made this very clear. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 3, the Pharisees came also to him, testing him and saying to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And they're trying to catch Jesus as they always were. And Jesus answered and said to them, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning, now he's sort of chastised them. Have you not read this? It's the scriptures. Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning, God, Jesus taking us back to the beginning, made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So then Jesus, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Let not man say it's okay. Let not man do that. Let not man speak contrary to God's design and original intent in this intimate, personal, human relationship called marriage. Now, then they said to him, verse 7, why then? So they think they've got him. Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? So they think they've, got, they've caught Jesus. Jesus said to them, Moses, notice, because of the hardness of your hearts permitted you to divorce your wives. But right again, from the beginning, it was not so. Now, we could spend so much time in this passage. This Friday, weather willing, John and Laura Cowan are coming to do our Friday night Valentine's. And then John will bring in a message on Sunday on love. And he's going to be talking to us as couples, but also to us as human beings in need of love. And God provides for us not only his love, but through us to love others. And foundational to all growth and human development, whether it's physical, emotional, intellectual, or spiritual, is the marriage relationship. It's, the fa it's foundational to the building of a family. God designed it to be so. For the birth of children, the raising of children. The marriage is foundational to, to benefiting any community at all times. If, 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 if understood and sanctified as God has, has designed it to be. It's foundational to the very survival of a nation as we are seeing. The marriage institution God gave us is very good. It's not flawed when we understand it according to God's design. Marriage is the deepest possible expression of intimacy between a man and a woman. God designed it to be so. Now, I love what Matthew Henry wrote, and maybe some of you have read this. He said, a commentator, Matthew Henry, quote, the woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. You see, marriage is a lifetime commitment of loving companionship shared between a man and a woman where there is intimacy without shame, where there is security without fear, where there is communication without destruction, where there is failure without retribution, and where there is forgiveness without resentment. It's this deep personal intimacy described as one flesh, the physical union in the sexual relationship, and the physical fruit of our children. The emotional union as we share together of our time and of our dreams and of our hopes and of our fears. And the spiritual union in our saving relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And so in this marriage relationship, there's a picture that we're given 
that we don't want to miss. And it's found in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, where Paul writes this, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Now, there's a lot of things we could, I'm, I'm just going to read this for the most part. Submission has been so marred by man's pride and man's uh, attempt to disparage this whole idea of submission. And it's so beautiful, we find it in the actual Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's the expression of love that we're seeing here. It's the picture of love that we see in these relationships where there's this submission, this loving submission, because there's a loving head. Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church. How? And gave himself for her. Jesus gave himself for us. We are to lay down our lives for our wives that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her, her, her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such things, talking about Christ, but also as a picture for us as husbands, but that she should be holy without blemish. When Jesus looks at you, when he looks at me, we are his bride. He looks to sanctify us and cleanse us and wash us with his word. He, he's seeking to present us as his church and glorious without spot or ring. And only he, through the Holy Spirit and the word and the fellowship we have in love with one another, in loving each other, he does this tremendous work where we shall be holy and without blemish. And so Paul says, so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Just as the Lord does the church, for we are just for we are our members of His body, of His flesh, of His bones. We are one with Him through the gospel. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. I love what Paul writes here because it is so true. This is a great mystery, and indeed it is. Every marriage has this this intimacy and this protection that's different for each one. Each one has this intimate communication with one another and intimacy with one another. And it's a great mystery for each of us and for our own. The mystery is that which we're still discovering is so glorious if we'll live our lives as husbands and wives according to God's design, laying our lives down as husbands, submitting to our husbands as wives and seeing that one flesh be visible in how we treat each other and how we speak to each other and how we are going about making decisions together. He said, this is a great mystery, but Paul says, here's the picture. I speak concerning Christ and the church. I speak concerning Christ and the church. So here's this picture God gives right from the beginning of time, this marriage picture of his love for us, his commitment to us, his work in us, in betrothing us to himself, as his future bride, is that he might work in our lives these beautiful works of the Spirit, where we become more holy, more without blemish, more safe and more secure, more intimate and, and deeply intimate with him. And as I've said often, 
that vertical relationship determines the horizontal relationships. And so as I know that love and I'm discovering that love that God has for me, it changes all the other relationships, beginning if I'm married with my relationship with my wife or my husband. And so Paul says this, just to wrap it up. He said, a great mystery by speaking concerning Christ Church, nevertheless, so I think what he's saying here is, don't over-spiritualize your responsibilities. This isn't just talking about, it's talking practically to you husbands. It's talking practically to you wives, to me as a husband. Say, nevertheless, let each of you in particular so love his own wife as himself. That's the first, that's the initiating. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. That's the response. So the Lord God, chapter two, big change. Now we have God in personal relationship with you and me. And the Lord God created everything with you and me in mind. He created you to know him personally. The Lord God put you right where you put you on purpose, that you might see his beauty, know his goodness, that you might discover the riches in his creation, but also the riches in relationship with him, that you might see the, the, the meaning and purpose in a life that's been put here for his purposes and honor him in how you're living your life. God created everything with you in mind. He created you to know him personally. He put you right where you are on purpose. God gave you life so that you never have to die. And God gave you love so that you never have to be alone. And so in concluding, the Lord God created everything with you in mind. And that's why he sent Jesus into a fallen world in need of a savior. You see, Jesus is creator God. He's the word that was before all things and created all things. Jesus came into this world on purpose. He came into this world in order that you and I might see the glory of God, that we might see him. Jesus then gave his life on the cross for you and for me so that we never have to die. Yes, death came into the world, but Jesus reversed the curse of sin. He reversed the power of sin. He, he took care of all of it on the cross where God placed on him all of your sin, all of my sin. Jesus gave his life for you on the cross so that you can live forever. And then finally, Jesus offers us his love continuously. First in salvation, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus offers you his love so that you never, listen, you never have to be alone. And this world, this fallen world, can be such a lonely place to live. Even in our relationships, sin has so marred God's original design that, that we experience a lo loneliness many times, even in a room full of people. But let me say to you this. Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. He said, I will never leave you or forsake you. He said, no one can snatch you out of his hand, myself included. So the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, he created everything with you and me in mind, that we might have life and have it more abundantly, that we might know his love and there find the meaning and purpose and identity that is ours uniquely and individually as being created in his image for his purposes and his glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Genesis chapter two. 
I pray, Lord, you bless this word to our hearts and minds. I pray, Lord, that each and every one of us who has heard your word, that we trust your Holy Spirit has been speaking to us and that we might hear the things that you've ministered to us this morning. That you might bless us, Lord, in our desire to know you, to know you, Lord. We also pray, Lord, for anyone that might be listening that doesn't know you. Our prayer for you, my friend, is that you would come to know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. He's there. He wants you to know him. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, God bless you. Hi, I'm Kevin Day, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel South. I really hope you enjoyed the message and that God spoke to your heart through it. If you'd like to know more about our church and find other messages to watch, head over to ccskent.org. And I would love to meet you at one of our Sunday services. God bless you.